Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Yay! Good evening and welcome to All the Things. This is the show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. I'm Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And we are here yet again. I'm looking forward to tonight's show. Me too. I think it's going to be really good. Um, Helping us on the show is the very swift moving Bob Bontrager. (laughs) Who had just jumped up to adjust the camera and then I kind of put him on the spot there. We think. Bob, for making this show possible. Yes, we do. We are live on Facebook and on YouTube. Please share the show, like the show, give us a thumbs up, comment, do all the things to help the algorithms and help us bypass all the bots who want to hide us. Bots are crazy. (laughs) The bots seem a little anti-Christian. (laughs) so that's the audience participation element of the show um and make a video like the bots are angry yeah (laughs) they don't like us podcasts in the hands of an angry bot yes they uh they seem to have stopped giving many of our followers an alert that we're even on or existing so uh we got some reports this week that some people said wait i had notifications turned on now it's not on anymore so i always tell you YouTube might decide for you what content you really like. So make sure you're still subscribed. Your notifications are turned on and share the show. Interact with the content as much as possible because all of those things help to um, overcome the shadow banning. And I will tell you the number one way that people find the ministry is because someone shared the content on their social media. Mm -hmm. So please give that share button or if you don't, feel comfortable sharing it publicly, like on your feed, just slip it in your pastor's DM or your friend's DM, somebody that you think will enjoy the show, share the content with them. Yes, yes. So tonight's moderators. Tonight's moderators are Lisa Fox and Emily Bontrager. Yes, wonderful women. Thank you so much for being a part of our team. And everyone welcome Miss Lisa Fox to, uh, this is her first night as all the things chat box moderator. Wow. So she's got a little wrench next to her name, so she's official now. Yes, and she don't play no games. Lisa, if you do play games, I'm just saying, go ahead, girl, don't play no games. So, and they will throw you out. Yes. If you a troll. Don't need to play no games. Oh, Laura Hartley's there too. Oh, hello, Miss Laura. All right. So people are there, and we are very grateful to our chat box moderators for creating a nice atmosphere so everyone can feel welcome and not trolled. Yes, we have no, no time for trolls. What's that big banner behind you? This is our reconcile banner. It is still here because we are still celebrating people. Last Thursday, so not Thursday that like day before yesterday, but the last Thursday we actually did our um our curriculum release. Yeah, our and launch party. Yes, our that, launch party. That's Thank the you. word you're looking that's for. That's the word I'm looking for. And then the Saturday the curriculum actually dropped. So we could go today. Yes, yeah, so we could go today. Our curriculum has actually been live and out there in the public square and public circles for kinda a full scary. seven days. Yes, it is kind of scary, just a little bit. But we are excited to receive so many notes of encouragement and how many of you are already enjoying it and um, looking forward to sharing it with others. This week, 
you had the first week of your small group. Yes. That you launched. You got about 35 people in the small group. Mm-hmm. Um, it's running on Zoom during the month of August and a little bit into September. A little into September. But how did your group go? It was so good. I love them. She sent me a text in the middle of it. She says, I'm having so much fun right now. I love them. (laughs) They just come with all their questions and thoughts. And it's so good. This is what the curriculum is designed to do. Sorry, I have like a hair. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I just, I, you know, I I had a hair. I can't just be. Live TV, people. Yeah. But it's good because it's designed to bring up conversations or to bring up things that, you know, some people don't really want to talk about, you know, especially like they're nervous. to talk about. Do I say this in front of a black person, you know, (laughs) or, you know, or maybe I shouldn't say this or, you know, and they were just bold and jumped right in. And I so appreciated it. We're going to run another group in the fall. I won't be leading it, but we are going to run another group and it's going to be, I know, just as good. It's, and it's yeah. a great way if you want to join in our fall group, if you're like feeling a little nervous about running it, joining the group would be almost like a quasi mini training mm-hmm. where if you're feeling a little bit nervous about running the group, hey, jump in the fall small group and then launch your group in January or something. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's OK. So um, it's a wonderful resource. Our book groups are coming for the fall um maybe we could uh well we'll talk about that later in the show but we do want to say this show is brought to you by the center for biblical unity theology mom podcast and family 210 clothing yes and go check out our family um clothing store family210.com where our family has ideas for shirt for shirts and then Prints them. <laughs> yes, you designed this, but this is actually something I said yeah. during a, I want to say a live stream. Speak truth to error. We don't necessarily need to always speak truth to power because sometimes power power isn't a, a bad thing. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Bible doesn't condemn everyone who has power or who is in power, but we do speak truth to error. And I so think that was Emily's idea to put that on a shirt. She yeah. said that would make a good shirt. Speak truth to error. That's right. Yes. So uh, $10 of every purchase goes toward the ministry and helping our family. So uh, we thank you for your support. Okay, so um, today, what were you up to? Today, whoop, whoop, I actually was a part of Southern Evangelical Seminary's Awaken Conference. And I was um, I was a speaker, but then I also got to participate in a Q&A panel with Bob Woodson, the living legend, the living legend and Eric Muldrow. He's in he's in a category all of his own, too. We love Eric. We love Eric. And so and there you are. Yes, there I am, along with Adam Tucker, who, you know, I don't really know what Adam's job is at SES. He does everything. He does everything. He's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. He runs our podcast, our social media all their PR stuff. Yeah. Like, I don't know what his job description is, but it just it's seems a lot. It's like none in everything. Yes. <laughs> yes. You do all the things, Adam. And then Judge Ginn is in the middle and he is the president. The new president. New president. Yeah. <clears throat> but look at there you are with the living legend. Bob Woodson. Yes. How is this your life? I have no idea. But when I when it was my turn to talk, I was like, look, we're going to have to cut through all the malarkey. Let me. I am the niece that you never knew you had. Hello, Uncle Bob. Hello, Uncle Bob. Will you please come on my podcast? Yeah, we. <laughs> I just had to let him know. I am the niece you never knew you had. Adam Tucker, get us the hookup with Bob Woodson. Yeah, we should have it by the end of the week. We want to talk to him. Oh, my goodness. 
So how that was exciting. that was fun. I was really excited how, to do that. How are we living this life? I have no idea. God is just amazing. He really is. He really is. Go back and watch the hundredth episode. Not. Oh no. No, because that'll lead you back to episode one and nobody needs to see that. That's a mess. But if you go to the hundredth episode, you get to hear a lot of insider stories of our shenanigans. Yes, we are here for the shenanigans. That's right, we are. Okay, are we ready to get into the guest? Yes. All right. <clears throat> so let's talk about your friend, Mr. Scott Allen. Tell us about him. He has written a book called Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. And he really just puts it all, he leaves nothing on the table. He just puts it all out there. And it's like, look, this is social justice. This is biblical justice. This is why it doesn't match up. And as Christians, we need to be doing biblical justice. Yeah. And like, he's done and dusted. Yeah. We did his book uh, this last term. Yes. Uh, in our summer book club, uh, Edwin Ramirez led that conversation. Went really well. It was really mm-hmm. well received. Ed, I know Edwin loves that book. Um, and you invited Scott to come be a plenary speaker at our upcoming up conference. Yes, because our com- our conference in September is solely based on justice, standing for biblical justice in a social justice world. And so Scott's going to help us break down what is biblical justice and what is social justice. What do these terms mean? How do we, you know, understand which is which? That's right. And there's his book, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. Seriously, if you have not read Scott Allen's book yet, um, and you're looking for something to pass along to your pastor to get them grounded. This is like such a good on-ramp mm-hmm. book. Um, it's a great book to share with your elder team, your school principal, yeah. um, and anybody that maybe is like even sort of new to the conversation. It's it's a great book. It's very accessible. A lot of Mercy Ministries, I think, would do well to read it. Yes, uh, you know, because there's there's other conversations in the social justice realm or in even just biblical justice. Like, how are we making sure that as we do biblical justice, I'm not negating or um, infringing upon someone's humanity or um, upon someone's free agency as a human person, according to God's biblical standards? Yeah, I think that's such a good word that, you know, if, if you and I have interacted with enough mercy ministries in what we do. Mm-hmm. That there's a surprising um, lack of theological awareness at times. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of like, we want to help people. Yay, that's great. That's a great heart. That's that's awesome. That's a great place to start. But how are we going to do it in a way that doesn't violate God's creation design? Yes. So that's um, go get Scott Allen's book, especially if you're involved in a mercy mercy ministry. Um, it's it's a great, uh, very accessible, very understandable, but good resource for yourself or to share with somebody. Now, else. we've been talking about him for a long time. I know. We might need to bring him on. So I, people I just want to do the setup. <laughs> let, let, so let's talk about know. him for 20 minutes. I know. No, I want people to know who he is. All right. So let's get Scott Allen on here. And there he is. Hello, sir. Hi, you guys. Great to be with you. So glad to have you. Thank you so much. Now, we have basically told everyone all about you, except for your middle name and how many kids you have. 
But, I mean, you might do it a little different. So will you please introduce yourself to our viewers and just, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. And how you got interested in the justice conversation. Yeah. Well, sure. Just, you know, I guess to answer those two questions, my middle name is David. And uh, so I have three first names, which confuses people. Um, And I have, I'm super blessed to have a wonderful wife, Kim, and five children. So... Uh, that's been really the joy of my life in so many ways. Um, you know, as far as just my background, I, I'm a native of Oregon, grew up in Oregon and uh, became a Christian my junior year in high school through the ministry of Young Life largely. Um, and then after that, I attended uh, a university in Salem, Oregon, a school called Willamette University. It's a private liberal arts college. It's pretty well known in Oregon, not as much outside of, of the state. And, uh, and then as far as my getting involved in ministry and my interest in justice, so that began really while I was at college. Um, I attended the Big Urbana Missions Conference in 1987. Oh, I did too. And, hey. I was only 12. Yes. Yes, I was there. Uh, oh, that's you can you can relate to what I'm going to share next because uh, oh I wanted to be a missionary oh I wanted Tony to help Campolo people was the speaker on the last night and you know if you know Tony Campolo he <sighs> would slobber and spit you know when he talked got he got he get really excited so I was down there really close to the stage with an umbrella I was one of those people <laughs> down there now I true story absolutely true story I bought Tony Campolo's Urbana 1987 message. And huh. on a cassette tape, and I played that cassette tape over and over and over again. I practically had the sermon memorized, I and mean, it was huh. so impactful on me. So that's that's so neat to to know that somebody else experienced that same that message. Whole, that whole conference was so powerful for yeah. me. And, uh, and yeah, and yeah, out of what you speak, Monique's just laughing like at Tony us over here. We're just Urbana. Hey, you, you still can go to. Urbana, they still do that, I believe. Yeah. So anyways, um, yeah. So when he gave a call that last night, basically it was a call to commit yourself to missions. Uh, you know, stand up if you want to do that. I did stand up, and and God took me up on that commitment. So so did I. Yeah. I stood up. Ah. <laughs> yes, and here we are. Yes. <laughs> anyways, no, it was a. I this consider it a real milestone. I'm so grateful for the ministry of, of Urbana uh, InterVarsity. And anyways, that year, um, 87, there was a terrible famine in Ethiopia. And mm-hmm. um, many people might remember this song, We Are the World. Bob Geldof got a bunch of celebrities together and they sang this song about yeah. uh, being concerned for the poor and for the famine stricken in Ethiopia, try to raise money. And I was involved in that at Willamette, raising money for the famine victims in Ethiopia. I had a soft spot in my heart for, for that whole issue. Um, had several friends who joined the Christian Relief and Development Organization Food for the Hungry uh, as well. And they had recently graduated. They had come back after spending time in Bolivia and Guatemala and Mexico. And I was very moved by their stories um, and felt a kind of a real tug in my heart towards doing a ministry in a, in a very impoverished setting like that. Um, and my senior year at Willamette, uh, God really used that famous parable of the Good Samaritan in a very powerful way in my life. And, and just that question of who is who is my neighbor? Who is that neglected, overlooked person on the side of the road that 
um, that people are walking by, but God's calling us to see and, uh, and, to, and to really get our hands dirty and get involved with to help. And um, I had the privilege uh, my senior year of, as well at our, of speaking at our graduation ceremony. And Willamette has a great motto. It's called, not unto ourselves alone are we born. And, and I spoke on that and kind of tied that in with the parable of the Good Samaritan and, and just really felt through all of that, just a call to, to, to serve with the poor, the marginalized, and so long story short, I ended up after graduating, uh, you know, applying to join with Food for the Hungry and they had a foreign missionary arm called Hunger Corps, kind of a takeoff of the Peace Corps and, and, and serving overseas. And, and so that's what I did. So that's kind of where it began. And uh, I served with Food for the Hungry for more than 30 years. And so had privilege of doing a lot of different roles there, traveling to many different countries, seeing a whole lot of the world and a lot of, uh, of the developing world. And um, so it's been a great privilege there. Now, uh, when I was reading through your book, you, you, you briefly mentioned, you know, coming from Willamette, um, coming, you know, out of college and just your heart for the poor and being at Food for the Hungry but that you also kind of had some, maybe we could call it sympathies towards certain aspects of Marxism. And I think it's, it's a little bit informative. Maybe we can give people some, some history about what things were like in the late 70s and the 80s when it came to justice. Like, what were those conversations like what were the major streams of thought about justice because when I was at Urbana like we weren't having a conversation necessarily about justice per se it was still very like great commission gospel oriented but there was definitely especially with the Tony Campolo call to action a bent toward sensitivity toward um, an awareness of the poor and Tony Campolo is a sociologist and um, kind of, I would say, evangelist in a way for social justice. Um, I think that would be a fair way of characterizing him. So maybe we could talk about, you know, where you were at and, and sort of some of the conversations about justice back in the late 70s and 80s. So, yeah, uh, you know, I was when I attended Willamette, um, you know, at my college days, I was still a new Christian. Um, and so I was growing a lot in just my understanding of the Bible and what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, Willamette uh, uh, and Oregon in general, Willamette in, in particular, uh, is is quite a secular university. Um, it was, I think it's become even more so. Um, and Oregon is kind of famous for its kind of secular liberal arts colleges. People think of Lewis and Clark or Reed College, and um, there's a lot of them. And Willamette was was one of them. And so, and I studied the humanities. I studied history. I studied intellectual history. Actually, really enjoyed it. But I was reading books by, you know, Marxists. Uh, I especially remember books like um, The Wretched of the Earth by Francis Fanon. Franz Fanon. And uh, really kind of accepting these ideas that third world poverty was, uh, was, was a result of the fact that wealthy nations like the U.S. and Europe uh, had stolen resources from the, 
from the poor through colonialism and rapacious capitalism and things like that. This was this was very much part of what I was studying. And I didn't really have, you know, over time, you just kind of absorb these ideas. Um, I, I didn't think a whole lot about things like abortion, for example, but, but I had absorbed the idea that, yeah, generally a woman had a right to choose whether or not to carry your baby to term and just never was really challenged or thought much about those things. And so I just became kind of my own thinking was was influenced by secularism, by by Marxist thinking uh, of my professors and friends. I certainly never, you know, kind of claimed to be a Marxist, uh, you know, but but it was more of a way of thinking. And I think, kind of in hindsight, what stands out to me now is just how kind of biased my education was in this area, in the, in the sense that Christianity was never talked about. There was no talk about in, the influence of Christianity on the West, even though it. It's been massive. Um, it was largely just ignored. And you're just kind of taught to see the world through the lenses of, of secularism, materialism, Marxism. And, it, you know, I think since the 80s, things have continued in that same way and probably have gotten even much worse, you know, in terms of just the, the general culture at universities like this. So so that was, yeah, that was what was going on. That, that was kind of what was shaping my thinking at the time. Now, when... We think about kind of the pioneers of what we now call the the Christian social justice movement. You know, who were some of those big voices, you know, besides Tony Campolo, like who else was in that space and kind of carving out a vision for integrating Christianity with justice and helping the poor? Yeah, I would say, you know, probably the leading voice was Ron Sider. Uh, Ron Sider, of course, still is with us. Uh, he wrote a book in 1977, so this had been a decade before I was in college, called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And, um, you know, really a pioneer, I think, of of evangelical thinking in terms of poverty, hunger. Here's my, and here's my there copy. Right there. Yeah. I just got Stanley the new Grant. revised one. Many editions. Yeah. yeah. It's gone through a few editions, but this is the latest one. I just got this a couple of weeks ago and have been working my way through it. But yeah, it's a, it's a cl- modern classic, I think, in this it area. Is. Very influential. It was influential to me. In fact, you know, I largely, when I read that book and was around people like uh, Ron Sider and Tony Campolo, I largely identified with kind of what they were saying, which was, which was really the same thing that I was learning in, in school in many ways, that the third world poor were primarily poor because of wealthier nations, uh, because of greed and selfishness. Uh, they had set up systems and stolen and hoarded an unfair share of the world's resources, kind of rigged the system to advantage themselves. And as Christians, we have a duty to help the poor. And the way that we should do that is through kind of living simply and giving generously and then kind of encouraging a lifestyle and government policies that would transfer wealth from, you know, the, the, the wealthy to the poor in the developing world. Um, and again, so much of the focus at that time was on famine relief. There was, again, these horrible famines at that time. And famine relief involves, you know, basically giving money and supplies and shipping it to people that are starving. And that kind of became my paradigm for working with the poor and, you know, all of that made a lot of sense to me. It seemed very biblical. It seemed very compassionate. Um, at the time, I didn't understand the critical distinction between emergency relief and 
longer term development, you know, obviously giving food or supplies is necessary in relief situations, but that it's very detrimental in uh, situations that don't involve uh, emergency disasters where it's just kind of a long-term development situation because it creates dependency and dependency is just another form of slavery. So anyways, those were lessons I had yet to learn, but uh, at the time, you know, I was, I was very much shaped by, by these ideas from people like Ron Sider, famine relief, and just wanting to be compassionate. So you know, I think it's so interesting that we went to school so like one, we went in different states, but the time frame, if you went to, to university like in the 80s and I went to university in the early 2000s, I just I'm amazed at the similarities in our story, like coming out of university and I studied sociology and so I'm not so surprised at how, you know, I was influenced. But coming out of university, you know, thinking, hey, abortion's okay. Like a woman has a right to choose, you know, all yeah, we have is Yeah, but you went to a Christian university. I went to a Christian university. <laughs> so, I mean, that could be, you know, some some contrast. But, you know, I just think that there's so many, um, you know, dif- differences, I guess, between secular and Christian university. But I think it's so eerie that we came out you know, with a lot of the same mindset, wanting to help the poor, wanting to, you know, care for the marginalized and things like that, which I think are biblical concepts and, and principles that we should uphold. And yet the idea of justice being so skewed. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Can, how do you think um, the posture of American um, evangelicalism was during the 80s? Like what was the posture of American evangelicalism toward justice back then? Sure. Well, I, I would describe it this way, and it'd be fun, Krista, to hear your perspective, but I would say for the vast majority of evangelicals in the 1980s, you know, their faith involved uh, things like local church attendance, Bible study, personal spiritual growth, kind of the devotional life. Um, you know, when it came to things like missions and outreach, it was focused on personal evangelism or uh, Billy Graham style kind of crusades. Um, and then overseas, the focus was very much on um kind of reaching the unreached and um, on church planting and things like this. And if you talked about justice, justice ministry, concern for the poor, um, as I started doing during my college days, you know, you were viewed with some skepticism. And later I learned that that was because, you know, many evangelicals associated those topics with the social gospel of the early 1900s, which is, you know, they rightly saw as a heretical movement. Um, so there was still that kind of carryover and kind of, you know, I noticed that people would get kind of prickly if I started talking about my concern for the poor or whatnot, you know, and, um, I'll tell you just a quick story, kind of how I came to an awareness of this. So when I, um, basically when I, when I was at Willamette, my senior year, I joined Food for the Hungry, was accepted into their overseas program, started raising support, you know, to go as a missionary, went to my home church there in Salem, a conservative Baptist church, really wonderful church, and had an appointment with the missions board to kind of share with them my calling, my sense of calling, told them I felt called to serve the poor, work with food for the hungry. And they were so quiet, you know, and and I could tell they weren't excited. And and honestly, it puzzled me because I was like, well, I thought they'd be super excited, you know, because the Bible's full of verses that talk about our God's heart for the poor and concern for the poor. And, and I'm just like, what's going on here? And they later said, you know, Scott, you know, listen, we appreciate your heart, 
um, and your concern for the poor is admirable, but but then they said this, they said, the poor will always be with you. And, you know, it's kind of, what they were saying was more or less, it's kind of a hopeless cause. And so what you need to do is focus on the really important kind of urgent things, which is getting people saved for heaven, you know, and evangelism. And we want to put our missions money towards those kinds of things. They ended up not supporting me, which was kind of a downer financially, but several of them did pray for me during my time overseas and they sent me prayer letters and they were honestly, they were, it, their, their support in that way was more valuable than money. So I, I, I have nothing but just wonderful things to say about that church. But I have to say it was my first encounter with this mindset of like, uh, you know, this is, it's, it's good to have a concern for justice and the poor, but it's not, you know, it's, it can be a distraction to these more important things. And, and uh, a lot of my my ministry after that has kind of been involved in trying to kind of correct that mindset, which I have always viewed as as wrong, you know. So, oh yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I can yeah. identify with that, and I think Scott's just a little older than me, not not too much, just a couple of years. And I think you know we kind of are in the same generation, and there was definitely I saw two dynamics. Is one was. In the conservative Baptist, which I grew up also conservative Baptist, so I'm familiar with that stream. In the conservative Baptist stream of like my grandparents' generation, my grandparents had endured what was called the modernist fundamentalist controversy, where many churches split over the social gospel. And, you know, you prior to that, there was Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians, but during that split of modernist versus fundamentalist, that one of the very key issues was over what was called back then the social gospel. Mm-hmm. So then all of a sudden there were social gospel or liberal Methodists and conservative Methodists. There were social gospel oriented Baptists and conservative Baptists. Mm-hmm. And so then Protestantism, especially in America, became even more fragmented and this became this this dividing line. And so when you were in a conservative, Bible-believing church, now remember, this is all prior to the seeker-sensitive movement and the big church growth movement of the 90s. So very different culture back then in churches. And, and the thought was, you need to get people saved. That, that was the primary thought. And if you were being sidetracked by social issues, the concern was that that was going to be a slippery slope toward the next thing that's going to happen is you're going to be over here in a liberal denomination in a social gospel church. But wouldn't you consider that an overcorrection? Like, I, I mean, I, I remember hearing people say, like, you know, you just and we still get people <laughs> who will come on our It's our a little interesting that say, now we're still in the same place. It's only the gospel, the gospel only. And I'm not saying that it's not the gospel or prayer and things like that. But, you know, we also do have responsibilities one to another, biblically speaking. You know what I mean? And so I, I, I wrestle with that of like people who are like, well, you know, the poor, because I've heard that the poor you will have with you always. It's like this this line that we can just sort of throw out there so we don't have to have a serious conversation about 
about the current reality. Well, you know? and it allows for ignorance to flourish because now you're ignorant or apathy. To, ignorance and apathy yeah. to biblical justice issues. And, well, I, and I know that's a hard word. And I, I, like, I know that, that that's a, a, a word that people don't want to hear. Well, but there, to me, there seems to be some pushback in my experience. I'm not saying it's your experience. Yeah. In my experience to how we can do justice. Right. With, so, with people not even knowing what biblical justice is. Yeah. So and I think that Scott is very and I would be curious what Scott thinks about this issue, because what I saw when, when, as you know, again, a, a, a teenager and young adult in the eighties. Uh, yes, I'm that old. I'm um, like, that's deep. So, I was like Scooby doing it up. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that there wasn't a robust discussion about biblical justice at that point in conservative evangelical churches. Like, I can't tell you one sermon I ever heard in my 22 years at the conservative Baptist church, going up there as a child, my whole life being there 98% of the Sundays. Cause mm-hmm. my mother was making me go. I had to be like yes, close, playing no games. close to being in the ER if I, if I wasn't going to church. So I was there almost every Sunday. I can't remember one sermon I ever heard about helping the poor, the disadvantaged. And, and, and that's not to say we weren't a Bible believing church, but I think it was like of this, this two things. I think it was a blind spot and an overcorrection to the social gospel. Like there was this zeal for so protecting the scripture, which, which I commend Mm -hmm. because they didn't want people to fall into the social gospel but the overcorrection was we're not going to have the conversation about justice. But and, he, go ahead, sorry. But I, and I want Scott to weigh in on this because I, I would love to hear what what he has to say on in his perspective. But I just don't think it was ever a thought that crossed people's minds. It 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 was so polluted and contaminated with the social gospel, which is not unlike what we are seeing now. Like. The overcorrection from the anti anti racists I see now is like, well, we're only going to talk about the gospel, and I'm like, yeah, we already we already made that but mistake the in the eighties. Here's the thing: it's like, yeah, I get the eighties and the early nineties, and y'all being close to the fundamentalist, modern, and whatever. You're like, I get all that, but from that point until March of 2021, what happened? Because I still didn't hear sermons based on like, oh, go help the poor. You should be stepping out and doing all these things. And maybe I'm, that's uncharitable. And maybe it was just in the sphere that I was roaming in, you know, like, yeah. so I can I can acknowledge some of that. But I don't think that the church has gotten serious about justice until we started to have the conversations, not 2021, of 2020 with Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, and now justice is on the doorstep of the church. This conversation of social justice, cultural social justice, mind you, is on the doorstep of the church, and now we're having to to, to basically give an answer. Yeah. So, Scott, we have said a lot. Come on, rescue us. Help us out. <laughs> Help us out. Give us it's wisdom. Great to hear you guys. Yeah, it's great to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, 
I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I think what happened, uh, Krista, as you were saying, was an overcorrection. The social gospel was a, was a, was a horrible thing. It went in a very secular direction. Um, churches that followed in that vein tended to kind of neglect the gospel and become very secularized. And so I think it was right for evangelicals to say, hey, that's dangerous. But they threw the baby out with the bathwater. That, that was the sad thing. So the, the, the baby being justice, this concern for the poor. And if you go back before that separation, you can go back to times where the church, like, for example, during the Great Awakening or in England with uh, Wesley, they didn't have this same separation or the early church didn't have this separation it was very powerful. They preached the gospel and they were, you know, very concerned for poor and slavery. And so, you know, we have to actually kind of go back. I think this, this, this rupture in the church in the United States was, and in the West largely was, we haven't gotten over that yet. Um, now I, I do think, you know, Monique, you were saying what happened. I do think, you know, guys like Cider and there was many others, of course, there, their work continued to bear fruit. I mean, Food for the Hungry, uh, World Vision, many of these big Christian relief and development organizations that were evangelical were birthed at that time, did doing good work around the world. Yeah. Um, and so evangelicals began to get back involved in justice ministry. I think you're bringing up Breonna Taylor and Ahmed, Ahmed Arbery is interesting because the recent discussion in justice then, the, the, that was, that's around the uh, issue of race. Um, and in my day, that wasn't an issue at all. That's another very important point. It was about poverty. Yeah. And, uh, you know, now it's all about race or sex or, you know, the LGBTQ issues. Those are the social justice issues. And poverty, it's interesting, has kind of taken a bit of a backseat to these other ones. That's been a big thing. I think that's a very important conversation and a very important difference between what was happening in the 80s and what's happening now in, in that discussion. And I mean, I remember Biola when I was a student there, they had an Evangelicals for Social Action Club. Oh, wow. And that was basically inspired by the Ron Sider, Jim Wallace, Sojourners stream of, of social action. And it was one guy at a table, always, at every club fair. Aww. It was... I forget his name. His name was Chris or something. And it was always that dude. And you always know it. It's like, oh, it's the the ESA guy, you know, and he wore a fanny pack and he was kind of a social liberal. And, you know, that was his campus reputation. And but now looking back on it, I, I think that I was full of a lot of judgments about that. I didn't even have any curiosity about exploring that, even though I had a heart for missions and I had a heart for reaching the lost, that neural pathway didn't go in my brain to, hey, maybe I should have a conversation about what we now call justice issues mm-hmm. or or helping the poor. That, like, mm-hmm. that just wasn't a train that that ever crossed my mind. It, it I don't know. I think maybe the way that, and I, it, this could very well be like a white church issue um, and I don't know what the dynamics were in the black church. And so that would be a whole other thing to explore, you know, where that breakdown was. But yeah. Mm. So it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Chris, a little fanny pack. I know. He fit in today, though. Yeah. No, he was a guy with a fanny the pack. Fanny packs are coming back. Guys. Yeah. Fanny packs are making, <laughs> making a comeback. Yeah. <laughs> They're making a comeback. Yeah. 
Scott, <clears throat> how did you begin your journey out of like this Marxist way of thinking and well, um, we might call it Marxist sympathetic. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not saying you yourself were like, you know, but um, yeah, Marx, Marxist sympathetic. That's a good way to frame it. Yeah. I think, you know, yeah, for sure. You know, the things I absorbed from Marxism um, were things like a kind of seeing the world in terms of victims, you know, oppressed victims, the, the third world countries and oppressors, you know, wealthier countries. You know, I saw resources largely as material things um, and in a zero sum way, meaning that they were kind of limited. There's only so much to go around. And the reason that we have more is, is uh, because you have less. So th- th- these ideas, you know, were, were I, you, they kind of flew, flew uh, excuse me, came out of Marxism, but they had in- influenced my thinking. So yeah, many things started changing for me. And I, they, I just have so many aha moments that kind of got me thinking in a different way. Um, it was hard for me to, to kind of boil down a few of them, but let me just explain, express a few of them. One was, uh, I have a dear friend who's a missionary, a uh, Bolivian missionary uh, in uh, Guatemala um, during the 1990s, early 2000s, named Arturo Cuba. And he was working with the Pocomchi, which um, they are an indigenous group in the Central Highlands, one of the poorest groups in Guatemala, which is one of the poorest nations in the Western Hemisphere. Anyways, uh, they this group of people that he was working with were um, their subsistence farmers. Corn is their staple crop, and they were Christians. Church planters had come in, you know, fifty years prior and had planted churches, and many of them had believed, um, but they remained very poor. Um, relief and development organizations came in, World Vision, Compassion, these groups. They did projects to try to help them water, you know, putting in wells and whatnot, but they remained poor. And this was the condition that Arturo found them in. And he, one of the things he noticed was that uh, every year their crop, their corn crop, half of it would be eaten by rats. And um, he was puzzled by that. You know, he's like, why don't you protect your crop? You know, the kids were hungry. They were malnourished and their wives and whatnot were, were struggling with malnourishment. And what he learned was that it was a way of thinking that had come from their culture, which was a fatalistic culture, an animistic culture. And they would answer him and say things like, well, rats always eat half the crop. I mean, they ate half the crop of my grandfather and my great grandfather. And so, you know, you never would even assume that it would be different than that. Rats always eat the crop. And he realized that when the Christians had come, they had brought the gospel and people had been saved, but they hadn't discipled them in kind of biblical thinking like dominion. Uh, you know, the fact that God created us in his image to, uh, to have dominion, to rule uh, over creation and to cause it to flourish. So he began, they were not literate, but he began to teach them about dominion um, through skits. And he said, I want you guys to play the role of the rats and you're the, you play the role of the farmers and farmers, you're out there working in that crop, weeding, you have to carry the water from the stream. It's hard work. You have to do that for months. You're sweating. Now you rats, you're over there just kicking back. Life's easy for you. Now that crop comes in. Okay, farmer, I want you to put that corn crop on a platter and I want you to go and serve it to the rat. And so they did that. And the rats, you know, just take the corn and say, thank you. And 
And then he asked this key question. He said, who's, you know, he kind of went through the dominion passage in Genesis chapter one and two. He said, who has dominion here? You know, you or the rats? And, and they all kind of looked at each other and they said, gosh, the rats, you know, and then it was like, well, should it be that way? And they said, no. And then he asked this question and he said, what, what are you going to do about it? And they said, well, we, you know, we can, we can create corn cribs and things that'll protect our crop. And they did. And it was a huge transformation for that village. I mean, literally life-changing. You can go on and you can see how their kids became uh, they, they were no longer malnourished. They went to school. They came back. They taught in the village. The village just rose out of poverty. And what, so what made the difference? It wasn't that they were poor because they had been, resources had been stolen from the West. It was more of a mindset and it was a culture. Um, and what made the difference was discipleship in a biblical worldview. So that really was a big paradigm shift for me that kind of got me thinking in a different way about poverty and uh, kind of challenged this Marxist presupposition as well. I, I think another one, honestly, was that, you know, Marxism sees resources. People are poor because they lack resources. Marxism sees resources as, as material, right? It's, it's things like money, natural resources, land, minerals, water. Um, it doesn't see resources uh, in terms of the ultimate resource, which is the human mind, this, this capacity to create new things. And over time, what I saw was that it was that creative capacity that we have as image bearers of God that is the fountain of resources. And uh, so how do you help people see the resources that they have and begin to creatively innovate, even if what they have is very small? That's a very different way of thinking than how do we redistribute resources from the wealthy to the poor, you see. Mm -hmm. And you could take, for example, a guy like George Washington Carver in our own country, a real hero of mine. I mean, he just typifies this kind of mindset because here he is, the son of slaves. Uh, you know, he's one of the poorest of the poor, comes from a very oppressed kind of circumstance. He witnessed people being lynched. I mean, you know, uh, so he knows what it means to be um, a victim of race, racism and oppression. But because he's a Christian, he doesn't, he doesn't consider himself to be a victim. He, he knows that God loves him. He sees himself as a steward and he, that God gives us things to, uh, to use, to create, to innovate for the good of others. And so he looks at peanuts and he begins to kind of say, God, why did you give us this, this peanut? And from that question and his innovation, you know, it creates all these uh, resources and wealth. Uh, I mean, it's phenomenal. So then I began to just say, gosh, the goal isn't kind of redistributionist, uh, but really how do we begin to help the poor uh, see themselves as image bearers of God with creativity, stewardship, mm -hmm. and innovate uh, so that they can create wealth uh, as well. How do we create this mindset of George Washington Carver in the poor? Because that's what really leads to, to flourishing. So, um, so many things like that. You know, Marx wouldn't have liked George Washington Carver. You know, Marx is an atheist. He would have felt like Carver, you know, was deluded because Christianity is the opiate of the masses, right? You know, so anyways, those kinds of things and many more began to challenge my thinking. I, 
Maybe I'll mention one other thing. I, I remember having a discussion with uh, my mentor, Dara Miller, uh, early on, right after I graduated. Um, and Dara helped me kind of get out of, you know, just kind of sort through a lot of my Marxist presuppositions. And, and we were talking about the early church and the book of Acts and how they shared all things in common with one another. And I said, see, that's kind of like Marxism, right? And Darrow said, uh, you know, the, the key difference is that they did it willingly, right? It was, <laughs> they, they, they made the decision to share their resources with others. It wasn't compelled or coerced or forced. Um, in other words, they were being generous. And uh, of course, Marxism kind of doesn't have any place for generosity because, uh, or stewardship for that matter, because uh, it, you know, it doesn't believe in private property, you know? And so anyway, so many things began to change. And of course, you know, when you look at Marxism and the fruit of it in different countries, uh, you just begin to see that it never works. And not only that, it's just deadly. Whereas biblical ideas are so powerful in helping the poor to overcome their poverty. Yeah, you know, Monique, I'm going to go ahead and before you even get started. Monique tried to stop you before you get started. Monique tried to bamboozle me with that Acts 2 passage as well, back in the okay. day when we started. She said, look, it's communism. I said, communism. I yeah. said, uh, a lot of people still think that way. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that's, that means what you think it means. <laughs> Y'all, she got shenanigans and <laughs> antics. You know, Scott, um, I really appreciate what you were saying about, you know, how we how we help the poor and helping the poor in a way that really empowers versus enables the poor. Um, and we also have to remember that even in our helps, we have to honor the created order or the created design that God has set forth for the human person and work is a part of that created order. And so, you know, when I hear you speaking about you know, teaching people um, or coming alongside people versus just doing all the work or, you know, spreading everything equally in a more socialist or communist structure versus allowing for free markets and people to work and markets to rise and fall. And, you know, all of those things, I think that it, again, it really just strikes this chord with me of how do we as Christians empower people to live within the framework that God has designed for, you know, human persons to actually take dominion and to rule, which is part of what was spoken over us in the garden. And so, you know, those things don't change just because of the fall. We still have words that were spoken over us and designed by God. And part of that is to rule and to reign. It is to work. There's a, a way that we as humans were created and designed to, to participate in the earth and with one another. Yeah, I think um, it, it, part of my own journey into this thought was that when I was about 24-ish, I met a gentleman named Father Robert Sirico, who mm. heads up an organization called the Acton Institute and went and was involved with his study program for like a week or two. Um, and it was in the early 90s, I think. They must have just been like five minutes old as an organization. But that was so impactful to me of, of my tender heart of wanting to help the poor, not really having a very developed theology of, of how to do that. And he, uh, Father Sirico is a Catholic priest and is very steeped in 
what I would call classical social uh, Catholic social thought. And he really talked a lot about the advantage of free markets to lift people out of poverty. And I think um, one of the things that Scott mentioned earlier is differentiating between short-term relief solutions that, that in an emergency situation, mm-hmm. which we saw in the 80s with these famine programs and everything, versus long-term solutions of how do we lift people, families, communities out of poverty and what is that strategy in your terms in social service of enablement versus empowerment. You yeah. worked in a, a lot of um, social service issues where you are always fighting that tension of how do we help people without creating a new system where they're just dependent. They go from dependency. being mm-hmm. dependent on this to being dependent on this over here in the name of Jesus. Yes. Like that's that's actually not going to help people. We are going to be talking about that at the UP conference yeah. for sure. Yeah. So I guess I a question for you, Scott, is I did think it was interesting in Ron Sider's book in the latest edition, like the first, I don't know, 30, 40 pages he kind of gives an update on where we're at with poverty. And he mentions so many examples of how people have, have we've made progress on poverty issues since the, the first publishing of his book back in the seventies. I thought it was so interesting that most of his examples were based on free market solutions. They weren't actually based on the solutions that he put forward in the first edition of his book. And um, I, I guess that's something that I'm always challenged by is, all right, how do we keep that balance in mind of, you know, famine relief, immediate mercy ministries versus lifting people out of poverty? I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, those, you know, it's really important to keep a distinction there. I, I think, you know, for me, what I came to see over the years was just the importance of, of key biblical ideas and that to see people really flourish, begin to flourish and thrive. Um, it's because they begin to live out, you know, uh, uh, truth. And, um, you know, the, the, again, the thing for me with Marxism was that it just, it, I became very, it just became very clear to me just how uh, false and destructive it is. You know, it's rooted in an atheistic metaphysic. It has a false view of reality that discounts God entirely has a false view of human nature. It accepts this Darwinian view that uh, people are primarily animals and consumers of scarce resources and are pitted against one another in this competition for power and resources. Um, it has no basis for things like forgiveness or reconciliation mm-hmm. or mercy or grace. And that destroys you know, any kind of civil society, a terrorist society apart. Uh, has no basis for human dignity. Uh, you know, oppressors are... are dehumanized and often imprisoned and murdered. Um, again, I think it's something like six is, what is it? 65 million people have been killed in the 20th century and beyond in communist regimes. So it sounds good, but boy, it's so destructive. And then you, you begin to say, well, what are these ideas in Christianity that lead to flourishing that you don't see in Marxism? Well, I mean, obviously People are made in God's image with inherent dignity, value, and worth. All people, right? Not just uh, so-called oppressors or victims. All people. Uh, people are creative agents because we're made in God's image. We can create new resources. 
Uh, and we're responsible for the wise stewardship of those resources for the good of our neighbors, right? These are biblical ideas that are very powerful. Uh, there's a basis for forgiveness, for mercy and grace, because God exists and he expresses those things towards us, even though we don't deserve it. And he calls us to express those towards others. You know, there's this virtue of um, hard work and of generosity, you know, uh, strong families, right? Marxism goes against the grain on all of these things. So I, you know, in summary, I would just say that to me, the key for help, you know, kind of really doing biblical justice, particularly as it involves the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable, it's not about money. It's not about projects. It's not about kind of human ingenuity, uh, scientific know-how, even though those things can be good. Ultimately, it's about discipleship and biblical truth and helping people begin to live out those truths that really see the, the you begin to see the positive change. Um, so again, I think uh, for, you know, a lot of Christians discipleship, it's kind of limited to read the Bible, go to church, learn how to do personal evangelism, but you don't get into these deeper biblical worldview things uh, that really are the keys to helping people to begin to rise out of and, and flourish. So. Yeah, I love that the discipleship piece is is really, you know, something that I think we need to step into even more so as a way to combat some of the social justice conversation when we disciple people into um into biblical justice, you know, that will to me immediately combat some of the the conversation of enablement and empowerment, but then also discipling people who are in poverty to understand their dignity, value, and worth, to understand how God has designed us as humans to work or to, um, you know, deal within the created order. I think those are all really important pieces to the puzzle. Yeah, and just to add to that discipleship component, I mean, when I was in seminary in the 90s, I can't remember one class, one conversation I ever had about what we call justice now. Hmm. Like there was there was no conversation about that. And it's really been my own journey in learning about that on my own where, you know, I've arrived at at these these thoughts and ideas, but back then like nobody was really talking about this and I think that that we're seeing the fruit of that now because I think because we haven't had the biblical conversation and we haven't engaged in biblical discipleship about justice, our young people are getting hijacked by secular social mm -hmm. justice because they see that there's something in the Bible that people have drawn their attention to. And they know that, that inherently and intrinsically that, okay, there's something here. Like the Bible does have some things to say about justice, but because there was kind of this, this big silence about the issue in many Bible believing churches and they weren't properly discipled. Now they're getting siphoned off by this secular theory. And so one of the things Monique and I are always talking about is the importance of pastors not avoiding this discussion, not avoiding sermons about justice but that they need to start discipling their people biblically about this issue to help inoculate them from getting carried away by, you know, a different 
doctrine. If you know, so I think that the discipleship is absolutely part of that answer. Um, did you want to say something? No, I was just going to say, I think, a, and I don't know if you would agree, but I think a good book even on, on some of this is um, Ron Nash's book, um, Social Justice in the Christian Church or Social Justice in... It's a classic, yeah. 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 So it's a helpful book. It's a more academic treatment, but it's... it. Um, you gave me my copy, so... It's you know. still my copy. As I said, carry on, please. All right. So let's go out to read some comments here on uh, YouTube. Um, P. Sherlotter says evangelicals were involved in relief, but could, but never could unite evangelism and development, which I think is, you know, part of the struggle that we've mm -hmm. we've talked about in this conversation. Um, I'd I'd be curious what uh, Scott uh, and Monique, both of you, if you have any thoughts on this, is. How much do you think government-funded welfare affected how the church has approached some of these issues? Ooh, go ahead, Scott. She got I, opinions. I, then I'll let you know. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's had a huge, you know, impact. Um, and if there's a book that I read that really shaped my thinking on this subject, uh, written by Marvin Olasky, who's uh, uh, he's an editor in chief at World Magazine, but he wrote a book back in the '90s called. Um, um, tragedy of American tragedy compassion, of American compassion. And basically, yeah, it was a history of, of Christians working with the poor in America from the colonial days, all the way through the welfare, the emergence of the welfare state into the present. And, um, you just began to see how as America secularized our whole approach to working with the poor, uh, you know, changed dramatically and for the worse, um, you know, viewing people as, animals and mouths to be fed and, um, you know, just all these programs then millions and millions of dollars that fostered all this dependency, broke down families, et cetera. So we really, we, we, we've gotten away from kind of biblical approaches to, to, to helping the poor. And very cynically, I would say too, and a whole industry, you know, grew up around this that kind of wanted to perpetuate itself. And to do that, it needed people to remain poor. Um, I do think, Monique, there's a parallel in the whole race discussion where, you know, we need kind of racism to continue because there's a whole industry of anti-racism, you know, <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, it's, it's terrible to say we should have nothing to do with that as Christians, you know, so. Oh, um, the church, let me make sure that I, I have, I think it's uh, Maria's question correct here. Um how much do you think government funded welfare? I, I honestly think that it impacts it a lot. I and you guys, I am growing in my charity levels. Please just bear with me. I think that or I wonder, not even I think, I wonder how much um the the churches um stand in some of the issues where welfare has now taken over mm -hmm. if churches have backed out away from that structure or away from that space because government stepped in and instead of saying hey no government like we are the church we're gonna you know be in this space you don't need to be in this space we've kind of allowed government to take over and to take to be in that space. And now I don't know that we necessarily have a plan to gain that space back or if we can, I think, um, yeah, I, I think that there's, 
way too much welfare and it doesn't um it doesn't honor the human person it doesn't um honor the imago day in the human person and it really just creates can create because it doesn't do this for every person more um entitlement and enablement within individuals rather than empowering them to go out and live into the fullness that God has created for them. Now you, when you were working in social service, I know that one of the programs that you helped develop and, and, and run was working with homeless people Mm -hmm. and people coming out of homelessness and kind of a whole wraparound program Mm -hmm. to, to help them. And even though you didn't necessarily, you weren't seeing a connection to Genesis one, you structured the program in such a way that you were trying to, to make sure that people had buy-in and ownership of what they were doing and, and their lives. And, and they had to take classes on how to make a budget. And, you know, you wanted them to get to the point of being self-sustaining and not just more dependency. Well, so. That's that goes back to my very first class ever, um, even before I got to Biola in sociology, where I saw the connection between welfare dependency and just kind of like no jobs. Like because like, you had seen there, some welfare there, dependency was, in your childhood and in your yeah, neighborhood and the people around yes, you. Yes. And you saw what that created. When people can make more on welfare than they can on a job. Who's going to go to work? You know what I mean? So I think that to me, I I was always um, I always held a posture not to be a fan of welfare. And so, yeah, I I worked from that place, even while still, you know, promoting more of the, the critical race theory or social justice narrative. I was just like, we need a ton of welfare reform so that people can go and be productive. So there was something that you knew I just knew it, it didn't work. You I just like, knew that's that, crazy. that that creates more dependency. That seems actually violating to people's humanity, even though you didn't have the theology all worked out. So early on in our conversations, that was a fairly easy point to win you over to in the beginning was you knew that, yeah, welfare. Yeah, that's that yeah, actually that actually doesn't help people. Mm-hmm. And you knew enough about that, even though you didn't have all those dots connected, like to Bible verses as to what that was. So it's a, it's an interesting conversation. Okay. I think there's any other comments you want to highlight here? Uh, let's see. Any last Oh, ones? Mel oh. says, this is a good comment. It's toward the bottom there, Bob. Uh, Mel says secular social justice has an immediacy to it. In our impulsive culture, it makes sense that people who want to do something good are attracted to its apparent but not lasting positive Im- impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mix in the the Christian call to do justice, yeah. you know, and all of that. And, and no one wants to, I, I, I don't think, I mean, maybe you do, but really want to see people suffer and live in poverty and things like yeah. that. So we do create more immediate structures. Yeah. You know, so but there are some, you know, things that we can talk about aside from that, that we'll talk about at up conference. Yeah. Like, you know, consequence. Yeah. So there's that. Um, you know, one of the things that I am wondering, Scott, as we begin to wrap up is if you could go back to the 80s and talk to the, the two factions of evangelicalism, what would you say? Like what words um, 
would you would you share about justice or um, words either of advice or thoughts of concern and caution? Like, what would yeah. you say to the the side of the conversation that was, you know, just gospel, gospel, gospel? And what would you say to the side that's social justice, action, justice, yeah. justice, justice, justice? Yeah. Um, well, to the, the conservative side that was focused on evangelism and the gospel, you know, I would certainly say, you know, thank God for your passion for the gospel. That's essential. Like that, that can never be lost. Uh, we have to keep that first and foremost, I think. So I would certainly say that and affirm that. But then I would challenge them to um, on issues of justice and cultural engagement and concern for the poor and the marginalized or issues of racism, even that this is not a distraction. Uh, this this is needs to be front and center. This is not optional. It's a it's essential to our Christian witness and our Christian ministry because God cares about these things. God cares about people. He cares about. Uh, he sees the oppressed. He sees the poor. He he you know he's so tender hearted towards them, and uh, we cannot be his witnesses, his ambassadors, and neglect that. So I would say that. And to the justice faction, I would say. Well, thank God for your tender heart towards the poor, towards the oppressed and the marginalized. Thank God for that. That's wonderful. But I would challenge them on the framework by which they're going out and doing their ministry of justice. It has to, that framework has to flow from the Bible, from a biblical anthropology, a biblical view of the human person. Uh, it has to be deeply rooted in the Bible. It, it, because if it's not, then we're going to just pick it up from the culture. And right now, that's very secular and very Marxist. And that's what's happening right now with this new generation. They, uh, you know, as they get involved in social justice, they're kind of doing it, uh, you know, in ways that are just aligned with this kind of secular Marxist approach. And Krista, it's exactly like you said, they're doing it because that's what's on tap. You know, they, they haven't been given an alternative. So I think that today it's really not much different. The road less traveled is still this road of us Christians saying, we've got to be committed to the gospel. We've got to be committed to the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. But we have to do all of that in a very biblical way uh -huh. uh, because the, the, the factions still remain the same in some ways. You've got these people that are still very committed to the gospel. and You've got these people over here committed to social justice, but they tend to be kind of uh, influenced by all this Marxist thinking. And so where, 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 where's the middle ground? The middle ground is these justice and the gospel are important, but we've got to put Christ at the center of all of that. And we've got to do it in ways that align with biblical truth. That's still a small group out there, I'm afraid, but uh, may our tribe grow and increase. That's there. right. May, may, may we yeah. increase as we try to, to walk uh, carefully on both understanding. I guess the way that I think about it is, it really helps to differentiate between law and gospel. Mm -hmm. What does the gospel do? What, what does the law do to tell us how to live, how to walk in obedience? And when we get those things mixed up or conflated, that's when things really start to come off the rails. We got a, a great comment on um, Facebook. I'd like to go to Elaine's comment there on the, all the things feed, and then we're going to say goodbye to Scott. Um, Elaine says it can be easy to step into a humanist. We can totally solve this problem on earth and strive without God's help or insight on the heavenly future where wrongs will be righted and suffering will be ended. But that's not a reason to step away. And isn't that 
the great mm-hmm. tension that we live in is we call this in theology, the now and the not yet, you know, we, we, we do live in a difficult world. We live in a Genesis three world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that yes, the poor will always be with us. And yes, poverty is difficult. Suffering is difficult, but we also live in a world where the gospel can change hearts Mm -hmm. and the principles of God's justice can change individuals, families, communities. Um, And when we start living out those principles, things can get better. They can improve. And so we don't need to be in this passive place of, well, the poor will always have with us Mm -hmm. and then go into doing nothing Rather, we have to just be thoughtful and careful about what we do and really helping to disciple us um, to do those things carefully. In regards, if I read her comment in regards to race, it would remind me of um, Ibram Kendi's train of thought mm. in that um, oh, we, that can, we can totally, we solve, can totally this. solve this problem just being anti-racist. But if you're not an anti-racist, then you're basically saying that you're okay with just being a racist. Like, if you're either an anti-racist or, you know, we just wash our hands because you're a racist. Yep. Well, thank you, Scott, for hanging out with us. Yes, thank you so much. This was great. and glad that we were able to have you on to introduce people to you. And we will be seeing you at the UP conference. It's really been an honor. I so appreciate you guys' ministry. And uh, congratulations, Monique, on the release of, of the new curriculum. I can't wait to use it. Can't wait to be a part of the conference. And so keep up the great work, guys. Thank you. It is definitely going to whew, be, I was going to say, be a time. I don't even know where my, my, I just lost my train of thought. Don't mind me, people. <laughs> okay. Don't mind me. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Scott, so much for hanging God out with us tonight. Guys. Take care. God bless. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, that little thought just kind of. That's okay. You just. We just. You keep rolling. People. We just roll. We just keep rolling. That's right. We're on, we're on the live show. Yeah, it is. So. Was, go. So I, I just want to say real quick about the UP conference, uh, since we're talking about that, is um, go check out the UP conference. Check out our speakers. It's going to be uh, three days, a virtual conference. It's coming up very soon. It's in one month. So now's that the time crazy. to to get yourself registered, get your friends, tell your pastor about it and you can go to center for biblical unity.com backslash up 2021 so go check that out see scott allen last week we talked to abraham hamilton yep. who will always also be at the conference abraham hamilton's the third the third yes yes not the fourth not the fourth no 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 and then next week, we're going to be speaking with Katrina Elias. Yes, who's another speaker at the UP conference. She's a um, social worker. Yeah, she's, a, she's an MSW. MSW. And we're going to, she's going to actually be talking about some of the things we talked about tonight regarding enablement versus empowerment and how do Christians make sure that we live in the lane of empowerment versus enablement as we enter the justice conversation. Our real heart with the UP conference is. We want to create a culture of what we call justice entrepreneurs, where we want average everyday people to catch a vision Mm -hmm. for a difference that they can make in their life. Even even if it's for one or two other families, you know, like not everybody needs to start a ministry, 
Some people can just see a need mm-hmm. and as a family decide we're going to meet this need. Yes. But we just want to make sure that we're doing it biblically. Other people might start a ministry mm-hmm. through their local church. Other people might go on to start a national nonprofit yeah. in a particular area. But our hope is to equip and to train Christians, pastors, leaders to fill that gap where many seminaries don't have classes. Mm-hmm. Like I said earlier, that I never had a class in yeah. this stuff. How do we bring God's wisdom and his law to bear on real life? So here's some of the details we can go to. It's going to be September 9th, and te- uh, 9th through 11th. It is a 100% virtual conference. And tickets start at, that should be different now. That was the early bird price is $55 mm-hmm. now. Um, there's going to be four plenary sessions and six breakout sessions. Yeah. So. You know, you hit on something so good about, you know, what can we do as a family even? And first understanding that justice starts in the home. Like, please don't go out and try to do justice, you know, among your neighbors and your community. And you ain't got no justice going on in your home. You're Everything, screaming at your parents. Yeah. You're disrespecting people. Yeah, let's, it's all upside down. Let's, yeah. No, but practically speaking, we met with Latasha Fields today and she's uh, a former guest on our program. She focuses a lot on community schools and homeschools. And one of the practical ways that we talked about, you know, someone, a family could get behind a homeschool co-op or a community school is by just buying lunch. You know, like what could you do with 20 bucks? You could go and buy bread and cheese and some ham and mayonnaise and like make sandwiches and give them, you know, enough for a couple kids for a week. So there are really practical ways that we can get behind and support because, you know, it takes it. There's that phrase that says it takes a village, but it really does take multiple hands and feet in the conversation. All right. So we're going to take a little break and rest my voice for a minute. <laughs> And we're going to hear from our friends at Impact 360, and then we'll be right back. Everywhere I looked, everything I read, all the things the world told me about who I was, what I should like, it was all there. The thinking had been done for me. But what if you can't shake the feeling that you are destined to be something else, someone else? Someone other than just popular. Or unpopular. The smart one. The jock. The Christian. The sinner. In the world today, how does anybody know who? Or what to be. Or what to even know. I found those answers and more. I learned how to think through the superficial problems and transcendent issues before me. And begin to understand what God has revealed and why faith is not blind. What I believe in my heart from my experiences. To know and respond to endless challenges of my faith with love and with confidence. So that I may listen and engage because I know what I believe is true. community where you are transformed in your character as you discover your identity in Christ. And your God-given calling. 
It's not only who you are, but where you should be. A community where you are cultivated as a leader. Where you will learn how to live a life of service to others as you follow Jesus Christ. The Impact 360 Institute is a community of experiential and holistic learning where you develop confidence in what you have always believed in your heart to be the truth. Then take what you know about God and what you know about yourself and live as an agent of change in your own community. Know Jesus more deeply. Be transformed in your character. Live a life of kingdom influence. Know. Be. Live. We are so grateful to our friends at Impact 360 for the work that they're doing with young people to build a solid, historically biblical worldview in young people. We were just there a couple weeks ago and we'll actually be back in a couple weeks. Yeah. And just thankful that we get to share in the work that they're doing in the lives of young people. So if you do have a teenager in your house, go check out our friends at Impact 360. They have a number of programs, but maybe that might be um, a, a group to kind of help support you in your um, discipleship efforts with your kids. Yeah, they have a number of programs from yeah. a week to Two a nine-month program. To a nine-month, yeah, mm -hmm. and a graduate program. Okay, and now it's time for the Tweet of the Week. The Tweet of the Week. Okay, so it's not really a tweet, but that we like the opening. It was Instagram this week. That's the social media post of the week. All right. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's a little less catchy. <laughs> less catchy than the tweet of the week, but that's okay. So this week on Instagram, I saw this in someone's stories. I thought it was so funny. It made me laugh. You guys, my husband, I'm protecting her identity, uh, went to dinner with an old friend. I walked to a nearby restaurant and the dining room was closed. I walked up to the drive through window, but he said, as I suspected, he couldn't serve me if I wasn't in a car. I jokingly asked, what if I identify as someone driving as a car, driving a car? I'm now waiting for my food. Yep. <laughs> beep, beep. My truth. <laughs> my truth is that I am in a car. So, yeah. That's the same logic. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So she she said with it literally when she she walked up to the window and, and talked to the to the teenager at, at the window. He literally didn't know how to respond mm -hmm. like the culture had. Now I'm speculating, but it, it was almost like the culture had already conditioned him mm -hmm. to to believe like this whole my truth. <laughs> how do I identify kind of thing? So. She got her burger and her soda. Good for her. <laughs> All identifying. I as identify as someone. You know, I identify as a lot of things nowadays. I'm just going, I'm like, hey, yes. You don't want me to do this? You want me to do this? What if I just say I identify as? <laughs> Laura says, uh, Shelby, that's her older daughter who used to just a job at Chick-fil-A. Shelby totally had someone do that in the Chick-fil-A drive through last year. <laughs> there it is. There it is. It's catching on, people. It's a movement. <laughs> the car identity movement. It will be a thing by the week next weekend. The car identity movement. This is where we are. This is where we are. All and right. This is where we're going. 
Um, so go sign up for the UP conference. Check out our Reconciled curriculum and make sure that you are subscribed to the All the Things uh, newsletter. I'm going to try something new where I'm going to start sending out those alerts on Fridays so that you know what's coming for the show um, to give you kind of a little preview of coming attractions. So make sure to sign up for the digital newsletter at allthethingsshow.com. Yes, sign up. And then if you want to get the larger newsletter, the weekly newsletter from the Center for Biblical Unity, go to centerforbiblicalunity.com and wait just two seconds and a pop-up will show up and ask you for your name and email address and you will begin to receive our weekly newsletter. Emily says, I identify as a car. My pronouns are beep and bop. There it is. There it is. You know. Elisa says, I identify as thin. Oh, well, there it is. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I have a lot of identities. I'll just keep to myself. (laughs) Keep to myself. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for being with us this week. We will see you next week. And until then... Make sure to like, subscribe, and share our posts. And we will be praying for you guys. Please pray for us. Wisdom, we will see you next week. God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.